This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure, 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Hello and welcome back to another episode of My Argyle Life, the series in which we delve into the stories of those on the terraces, in the offices and occasionally on the pitch. We convene just days after fellow Devon side Torquay United are placed into administration and I'm sure we'll touch on their fight later on in the pod. But it is nevertheless a timely reminder of those dark days that we faced as a club. In the last episode, it could be the last episode, depending on the order, uh, we spoke to Graham Clark, former chairman of the Fans Trust and now a regular on this very podcast. So it's now only right that we catch up with his successor, Mr. Chris Webb, how's things? Very good, lads. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. You've had a long day, um, but not as long as me, as we were discussing uh, <laughs> off air. Um, basically, we, we always start these pods off with like the age-old terrorist chant. Who are you? So, yeah, my name's Chris. I've been an Argyle fan uh, my, my whole life. Introduced to the club by my dad, like probably <laughs> quite a lot of us. Um sort of taken to home park at the age of four years old uh trying to force it on me i think i was maybe a bit too young to understand it then uh but fell in love with the club uh you know probably like a lot of fans uh argo over the years when they're not doing too well um when uh, we were relegated um into what's now league one um and then the glory area probably my favorite time still now really following Argyle, was peter shilton's team uh, as he put together an early man um, and just remember being in school and with all my mates and, and being, you know, that step where you, you could stop going with your dad and start going with your mates and just, just being so, so in love with that team, that brand of football. And like, yeah, never looking back since promotions, relegations, nearly losing the club, rebuilding the club and back uh, doing really well now. Yeah, on that on that journey, I'm, I'm sure we'll get into it in a bit more detail, hopefully. If Sam, if Sam remembers his history right, um, we'll get into that. But obviously, your early days, you've already mentioned, you know, Peter Shilton and the Nearly Men. Who from those teams growing up do you remember fondly? The whole of that team really was class. You know, Steve Castle, uh, Steve McCall, Nugent. I mean, it's just beautiful footballing team. But my personal favourite was, uh, you know, 
God rest his soul, Alan Nichols, the goalkeeper. Um, just I just loved it, like you know, being on the terraces, you know, as a young lad and seeing somebody on the pitch you could imagine like seeing yourself in. You know, I used to love it. It don't matter if we were just one nil up and the, and the and the opposition team was all over us and we'd sing like Nichols, what the, what's the score? And he'd have the confidence to just put the score up and give us a one nil or or whatever. Mm. And and I remember also my first ever game at um at Exeter away watching Argyle. And uh, my dad got got me tickets. Uh, he said, "Tell him you're going to go next to away. Your first ever game is still still quite young." And I was super excited, and he took me all the way to the ground before he told me that the tickets were actually in the big bank in the Exeter end. So I went there with my dad, and I got two like really strong abiding memories from that. Well, three actually. We won, which was great. Uh, Shilton's team turned them over on a four two on a hell of a night. Uh, so that was one of the three memories. The second memory was my dad, who was a heavy smoker. Um, um, the Exeter had this giant flag that came over and, and my dad and quite a few ever Argyle fans were stubbing their cigarettes out in the flag. That was my second memory. But my third memory, um, perhaps the most, or well, second most after the win enjoyable, was Nichols coming out to the big bank, getting absolute, like, shed load of abuse and re- returning it with a, a, v, a v signal uh, and giving them the bird. So, yeah, he was like a proper terrorist cult hero. Obviously, beyond Peter Shilton's years and beyond past your first away day, you've done several since then as well. Um, when did your, like, I don't want to step on Sam's toes here where he takes over your actual involvement, but when did, like, you start getting involved more and more with Argyle before the, before the trust, before you joined there? Was there, like, any point where you started to realise that your involvement was increasing beyond the point of this becoming more than a passion and more of it, like becoming your life yeah i mean sort of like 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 most i mean my sort of argyle life like as a fan really is pretty standard in like i would want to go on a saturday afternoon get to the pub rock up to the ground at five to three you know give some abuse to the referee and the linesman cheer the team go home moan about it for the next week and then recycle it sort of thing and i was adamant because i mean i still work now for a trade union and I worked then for a trade union uh, representing people every day of the week. And what well, I went to football for a rest from that, I went to Argyle for a, a change of scenery, if you like, you know. So I had zero ambition in in, in getting involved with, with Argyle, you know, sort of in my spare time. And I suppose I watched the, 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 the club go into crisis, the period where the players weren't being paid and the staff weren't being paid for months. Uh, the administrator coming in, uh, Peter Risdale coming in, the formation of the trust and people doing an incredible job with that. And the situation just seemed to get worse and worse and worse. And I particularly remember like there was a big public meeting. I think it was at the Guildhall. And, and I thought, uh, probably made a mistake there, but I thought I'm going to go along. That was the first time I'd ever like crossed over, if you like, my working life into like an Argyle being anything other than the football. And, you know, I, I, there was a, the administrator was there, Peter Risdale was there, and the trust were doing a great job there. They were there then. But I just was sitting in the in the audience thinking, like, this is a bit soft. I think these guys are getting away with a lot here. And I think, you know, they're they're basically preying on people's decency. And, mm. and, and I thought we could um, push a little bit more. So I um, sort of semi-separate from that, there was an, an advert from the trust uh, steering group then who was like basically seeking people to help do different things like you know if you can do some comms if you can uh, get involved in the committee if you can raise some uh, funds and stuff 
And mm -hmm. I dropped a note to the then secretary and a really good friend of mine now, Peter Ryan of the Fans Trust, and said, you know, I, I, I work for a trade union, but I, I do communications a lot. Um, you know, if you want someone to, you know, prep some social media out or give you a hand, then, um, you, know, you know, let's do it. And uh, I'm up for it. And then Peter uh, rang me uh, like sort of, uh, you know, maybe a few days afterwards and said, yeah, we really love you to come on board. Uh, Argyle were playing, I think, my memory's a bit phasey, but I think it was might have been Brentford away that Saturday. And he said, we've got a steering committee on the Saturday before Brentford. I think it was in a Premier Inn or something by the ground. Do you want to come along? And I thought, yeah, I'll come along. So I went along. The committee was 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 great. It was, everyone was really sound. And, you know, I thought, oh, you know, I can help out a little bit here. That'll be great. Uh, the following week to that was my union's conference down in... Um, uh, Bournemouth. So I went to the conference to do my obviously day job and Graham, who you had on uh, the previous episode, Graham Clark, rang me and said, um, oh, there's a couple of bits of information. And I said, what's that? And he said, like, I've decided to step down. Now is the right time to me to step down as chair of the trust. And I was, oh, you know, really sad. I don't, you know, think that's a, that's a sort of negative for the fans, etc. You know, and I said, what's the other thing? He said, we, we've met and we think it should be you that takes over the trust. So like from week from a week of like like zero involvement, all of a sudden like a week later or so later, I'm the chair of the trust. And it's like and he and I said, is it all right, okay. So there's one more thing. He said, and this is like nine o'clock at night, seven o'clock tomorrow morning that, that they want you on BBC Radio Devon to introduce mm -hmm. yourself as a new chair. So in that sort of spat of like a week of like not being bothered not being involved at all, I was all of a sudden the chair of the fans trust. Yeah, I mean, there's some there's some similarities there with, with how Graham took over himself yeah. by the sounds of it. It's, it's similar to how Sam accosted me in the pub and made me involved <laughs> in Argo Life a week later. I had the Twitter login, so you know, not to you know, not to compare it really, you know. Um, but obviously, much like um, yourself with Graham, I think this is where Sam takes over from me um, and runs us through those you know fateful days uh, of administration. Yes, indeed. Um, hello again, Chris. Long time no see. Um, so, yes, um, I've, I've known Chris a very long time, pretty much since those days he's been mentioning, really, and they were days I still remember pretty well. A lot has happened since then, and um, certainly both on the pitch and, and in all of our lives, but I, I do remember those days um, very well still. Um, for a little bit of context, for those who haven't heard the Graham interview, uh, I was briefly involved in the sort of, not even the steering committee, more like the pre-steering committee. Um, and I basically had to step down when it became official steering committee because I wasn't seven, I was 17 and I wasn't yet 18. So I didn't quite cross over with, with Chris on the trust board, but we, we were heavily um, involved in doing stuff for the Green Taverners, weren't we, Chris, um, who yeah. became very much aligned with the trust at that time. We had a few, um, boozy nights in the cherry tree didn't we back in those days and um so it's it's going to be interesting interviewing you about stuff that, that i myself remember so i'll try not to waffle any more than a half this last minute or so um anyway um so so chris yeah you you took over then um what was that first um week or two um like as you sort of began to cope with the media attention all the same time it's all hitting the fan off the pitch isn't it with the administration becoming closer and closer that, that week. The points deduction came in. Talk me through as best you can those first two or three weeks of being the trust chair whilst everything was falling apart around you. 
Sure, yeah, um, thanks, Sam. And and yeah, I remember those moments with you and those beers and shots, many of them very fondly up the cherry tree and other uh, establishments as well. Uh, there was, um, it was, it was, it was mad. It was wild, you know, and you, you knew when you're in something like anything in life, it seems to have a sense of normality. But then when you think back, you think, what, what, what was that all about? You know, uh, but I sort of just really just thought, right. Okay. You know, what's been going well, what's not, what can I apply to this? And, and like, let's methodically go for it. And you mentioned, um, a couple of things there, which have triggered a couple of thoughts. So the first was, you know, obviously the, you had the trust, uh, which had a sort of a growing membership um, and had a growing respect amongst the fan base. You also had the Green Taverners, which had the same. Um, and then you had uh, the internet, uh, Pasotti, Plum Fargo fans on the internet. And what was seeming to me is one of my sort of things I spotted earlier on was there was a little bit of three separate organisations, like almost covering some of the same ground and like a little bit of small P politics creeping in like in terms of territory. So my first thing really was spotting that was to bring people together and say like, you know, we're not going to have that. We're not going to have like everything's not going to be the glory of the trust or, or of Pasotti or of the Taverners. It's going to be about saving the club. So we need to raise money for the staff. We need to raise the profile for the fans. We need to raise engagement for the fans. So all three of us as organizations can work together. And, and that, and that went um, sort of really, really well. The other thing I did, which I thought was a really good launch pad, and I'll tell you some uh, some some good like anecdotes now, was the meeting that sort of inspired me to write to Peter Ryan that I detailed earlier on in the Guild Hall was where I was sat there thinking like you know I would have run this as a union meeting versus like what this is. So one of the first things he did in the first couple of weeks was re once we'd got everyone together, we got everyone going. I started sort of posting online. I think we tried to introduce a little bit more of a militant tone with a fan base. Um, we recalled that meeting and it was in the, on, I think it was on a Tuesday night in the lower guild hall. And it was as rammed as a, a rammed meeting could get in the guild hall. It was absolutely packed out. And I invited, uh, you know, Brendan Guilfold, the administrator, Peter Risdale was the acting chairman and Vivian Pengeli, Rester, so, uh, who was the leader of the city council at that time to address the meeting. And I remember speaking to a load of my mates. This is a, something I don't think I've ever told anyone um, before the thing and saying, like, when Guilford and Ridsdale come in, give them an hard time. Like, nothing physical, nothing stupid, but make them feel as if they're not welcome anymore. They're not here to run the show. The fans are here to run the show. And I can remember um, I had the microphone and, you know, Guilford and Ridsdale were coming in and there was like a little bit of a kerfuffle, put it in a politely word, at the entrance there. And I can remember taking the mic and say, let them through, everyone, let them through. And I can remember Brendan Guilfoyle coming to the front and saying, thank you for looking after us there, Chris, even though I'd sort of set the interaction up. Uh, and I thought then that was a nice moment because I was sort of starting to say, like, you guys aren't in control anymore. And sort of, you know, uh, used the meeting to fire everyone up effectively and sort of set a different tone that, like, you know, the fans were now in control of this situation, not administrators, not politicians, uh, not club officials. The fans were here to take control. So I think that was, that was positive. Uh, and then I think we started the process, uh, Sam, of setting about who's going to buy this club because like, you know, we need someone to buy it. So that was the first uh, couple of weeks, if you like. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's interesting there. There's a lot you've said there I'd like to pick up on. But uh, just to focus, first of all, on, on Brendan Guilfoyle. Um, again, I think listeners who who heard Graham's will, will know very well who he is. But, um, you know, for those who've not, I'll briefly explain. I'm sure you could provide a different perspective. He was the man who was the representative on behalf of the P&A administration company who, who the club effectively hired to, to administrate the club and, and find an owner. And often when I retell people the story of the Advent days, they were kind of, they kind of like, well, what, what are you giving him stick for? He's just the, you know, he's just the guy behind, behind the scenes who, who's trying to find the buyer. But he was, he was a bit more than that really, wasn't he? He seemed very keen on the Ridsdale and Heaney deal to go through at the expense of the James Rent deal. Would that be fair to say? Uh, I think that's very fair to say. And I think, you know, if we're writing a villain list, he'd be probably pretty high up there for me. And I mean, you know, a couple of things that, you know, were very distasteful was I was at a meeting once. I think this has been told by other people I've, I've read and, and, and maybe listened to over the years where he basically said, like, anything's for club, anything's for sale at this club, make me an offer and got got our playoff winning uh, trophy from 96 um, out of the cabinet and was basically trying to flog it to the people in the boardroom there and then, like, you know, just to get rid of it, basically, you know. Uh, so that's sum up. But I also remember in it, uh, was maybe his character, as we started to rattle him, you know, and, and, and our online numbers were really good then. We were getting loads and loads of people to the mit. We had a big meeting at the pavilions as well. And it was clear that the fans, you know, were just not having this, uh, frankly, crap anymore. They, they you know, they, we were cutting through it and and we were we were on a, on a march to save the club. I, um, uh, called them out like significantly over a prolonged period of time. And there was a couple of things he did, which were distasteful. So uh, one, one day there was a headline in the front page of the Herald about the fans risking the future of the club. So trying to essentially put uh, your average Argyles fans fire on the likes of me, sort of saying they've gone too far, etc. which, you know, we, we had a, a right reply to, and we, and we, we dealt with, but the other was I was sent a really nasty legal, letter during one altercation which basically threatened like uh you know everything i had which was not a lot <laughs> and still wouldn't be a lot but it was you know the type of letter i think that was designed to put frighteners and, and to say you need to back off here you know but what was interesting about that letter is the subject matter they picked to, uh, accusing me and the trust at that point of of picking out i knew for a fact was true so it was one of those moments where you draw a bit of breath when you first read the letter, but then we doubled down and went again and we never heard anything more on that subject matter with, with Guilford. But yeah, he was a he was an interesting character. Um, yeah, when it came to the end as well, and I'm sure we'll get on to that, he, I, he made the call to me about saving the club. Um, and I'm sure, you know, we'll talk about it in some detail, but it wasn't a call he was happy to make, we'll put it that way. Yeah, very, very interesting. And I think he's never, as for someone who was quite a regular football administrator, he's pretty much never worked in football again. And I do wonder what that spell at Argonne may have done to his reputation in the train. Mm. Obviously, perhaps that's me putting two and two together and making five. But, but, but yeah, but, but who knows? Um, so, yeah, the, this, this bid then, this Ridsdale and Heaney bid, again, my memory of that was that, you know, every day a new layer of it seemed to come about. Um, like, first of all, it was known as the Irish Consortium. And I think that was because there was a shell company registered in Ireland. And I think that was all it, that was the only link to Ireland. And be, the more and more people peeled it back and did their sleuthing online, it became more and more clear that that, that it was a front for, for something called someone. And for the avoidance of that, for any lawyers, I don't mean a front in the sense of any illegality, but it was clearly, you know, the, the real people behind it were being disguised. And I think we all know that. And, um, 
obviously you set up the the working group, which kind of goes in with what you said about bringing the fans uh, together, the trust, the GTs, uh, Pasotti, one or two others as well, I think were involved. Um, and then there was the infamous breakfast meeting, wasn't there, that, that confirmed the real um, uh, person behind the Irish bid as being Kevin Healy. And um, honestly, was that a total coincidence? Did you have no idea he was, he was going to be there at all? No, it was the stuff of legend, really, when you think about it. It's like comical. Um, you know, if we wrote it down as a, like, and said, we're going to sell this for someone to make a film, they would just go, no, that's, that chapter's not believable, mate. You need to take that out. Um, we, so what, so what happened is, um, uh, started to work really strongly with, uh, Gary Maguire at the Green Taverners, uh, Ian Newell on Pasotti and other things. But, uh, Gary rang me one day and I remember it, I was in the Britannia pub and he said to me, like, unless we get some money in, the staff can't keep doing this. There's like X amount of people who aren't going to be able to pay their mortgages. And I said, well, you know, what what are we talking here? He said, like, we need some money from somewhere, Chris. Can you? So we started like raising or sitting there and we were, we were writing down ideas and stuff. And um, earlier that week, um, I'd been given James Brent's number by the council. Uh, been given this list of basically the richest people in Devon. And my, I was like working my way down it, trying to like, like sort of harass someone into buying our goal. But anyway, so... I rang, I was in the Britannia pub, remember it clear as day, rang James, had never obviously met him and said like, you know, introduced myself, introduced the plight and said like, I know, you know, you've got an interest in in in, um, in in the area and a base in the area in Devon, like Argyle is a huge asset. You know, if it goes under, then, you know, the, the, the damage that does for the city of Plymouth in, in terms of economically, is it going to impact people like you? Blah, blah, blah. Please don't hang up the phone, etc. He's gone back and said he's not interested in football. He's never seen a game of football. And I said, and then I started, you know, to talk to him about where the staff were at and stuff like that. And he was genuinely really, I mean, James is a great, great man, but he was really taken aback by the staff plate. And he went, well, what do you need? And it's, bearing in mind, it's the first time I've ever chatted with him. And I said, £5,000. And he said, I'll, I'll transfer you £5,000 for the staff. That was my first call with James Brent. And I said, well, I need something else. I said, will you agree to meet us? I said, just agree to meet us. That's, that's all I'm asking. Nothing sort of more commitment than that. Just, just meet us. And he said, yeah, I'll meet you. Um, and we'll meet. And he said, when are you available? We set a date. Right. Let's meet in the holiday in on this date. So I'd arranged a meeting with James uh, on that date. So in one interaction, like with, with James, he'd, he'd given 5,000 pound. And then that night I posted it on Pasotti and said, like, we've got an anonymous source giving us £5,000. Uh, Everyone was really chuffed, etc. Then we went um, to the breakfast meeting, Ian Newell and myself. I think there was someone else, but I can't remember, a memory hazage, but Ian Newell was definitely with me. And we said, yeah, we were meeting James at, like, say, 10am. And I said to Ian, like, this guy's going to buy the club. We are effectively going to make him buy the club. We're going to show him the best of our guy, the fans. We're going to talk about the pride of the city. We are going to go in there and we're going to sell ice to the Eskimos today. And he was like, yeah, yeah, let's go. Well, let's meet at nine o'clock up in the breakfast room in the Holiday Inn. Yeah, no problem. So me and Ian go into the breakfast room. We're sat having breakfast and like Ian's like sort of facing me and I'm looking at the sort of rest of the breakfast room. And I said, Can I, am I allowed to swear on the pod? I'm not allowed to swear. I said, fucking hell, it's Kevin Heaney. And he was like, no, it's not. And I'm not joking you, in some sort of like like comedy sketch, Kevin Heaney had the biggest maps and plans on the table you could ever imagine with like home park, with developments next to it and all that. So we, I just said, like, if we don't front him now 
and I mean, right now we'll never, we'll, we'll always regret it. So Ian and I went over, introduced, started taking photos of the plan and everything. And it was like mayhem. He was with someone from the council and all that. Posted like, it's Heaney. We know it's Heaney, et cetera. Um, exposed him, went downstairs and met James. Absolutely incredible. Um, I'm not sure Aaron, Aaron's uh, shaking his head. Was that having to bleep out the swearing? Was that the story, Aaron? No, no, no. Just the, just the story. I mean, was, that, was, yeah. there, was there any part of you that like felt, sorry if I'm stepping on your toes here, Sam, but was there any part of you that thought that if if it was taken out of your hands somewhat and, and Heaney was, you know, involved, that it could have been okay? Or was it just like outright... Yeah. Absolutely no chance. I, uh, you know, I know he's a bit of a uh, words yeah. I'm not going to say, but like, you know, I didn't know if there was any part of you that those plans sort of semi could have semi convinced you at all or not. No, I no, I think no for a, a few reasons. One, because obviously his reputation preceded him, and, and we did the due well, diligence, and that it was clear, like you know, if it was Heaney, then you know we would be in serious trouble, and it would be a property transaction and nothing more. Yeah. Um, second, look, you were looking at what he was doing down in Truro which he was asset stripping that football club. But just alongside those things was, you know, was the lion like, you know, oh, it's an Irish consortium. Oh, it, you know, it, it, it's a business person that doesn't want to reveal himself. If you really had proper, true ambitions for a football club and any business, you should be confident enough to step forward, put your case on the table and go and engage fans, representatives and, and the fans and the staff and everyone. The fact that he was so shadowy, I think probably told you everything you right. need, needed to yeah. know. And I think, you know, you guys experience it in all aspects of your life. You just know when you're looking at someone. I was looking at someone that was like, I have been caught out here, like, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it was going to be this contrived plan, wasn't it? Whereby because he, he couldn't legally own the club because he would still be owner of Truro. And if I remember, it was going to be this ridiculously contrived plan whereby he was the owner of the ground, but Peter Ridsdale was the owner of the club. Mm-hmm. And... Peter Ridge was a man who a lot of people have very complicated views on. Graham was, had quite a nuanced view on, on Peter Ridgedale. And, and I do understand why, because ultimately he did come in and, and do a job that had to be done to an extent. But how much do you hold anger and resentment towards him? Because at the end of the day, if he hadn't have kept going with this Heaney charade for as long as he did, the James Red deal could have been a lot quicker, the staff could have been paid a lot better, and our goal could have been back on their feet a lot quicker. I think, I think we know you quite rightly feel a lot of resentment towards Heaney and towards Gilfoyle, but how much resentment do you hold towards Peter Ridgedale for, for, for mothballing that situation, essentially? I think Peter is um, probably fitting well with like a modern-day politician. If you don't like my politics, I've got others, sort of thing. And um, he, uh, you know, was looking after himself in, in, in that transaction, I think. And I don't mean financially. I just mean, like, in terms of, you know, what was best for sort of his reputation, and stuff like that. One thing I would say, you know, about Peter was he was an incredibly charming individual. So, for instance, when I first met him, um, I was sort of putting a lot of pressure on him, uh, you know, saying, like, things are going to be different now. These aren't warm and cosy chats. They're chats where I'll be reporting back to the fans about exactly where we are. You'll be held to account, etc. And he was going back and forth about being misjudged, you know, as an individual and stuff. And I said... And, he, you know, uh, what, I challenged him on what had happened at Cardiff and what had happened at Leeds United, etc. And that wasn't his fault and this wasn't his fault. And I said to him, well, let me say to you one thing that tells me you're a terrible judge. And he said, what's that? I said, you sold Eric Cantona to Manchester United for a million pounds when you were chairman of Leeds. And he went, I was on holiday. <laughs> so that was your tell you all you needed. But no, 
about Peter's character and reluctance to let things uh, stick to him. But, you know, come the end, once I think Peter realised that that incredible force of the fans, the staff, the council and James Brent was had so much momentum, he jumped on the winning horse and he, and, and he, and he, and he went with it and was helpful in, in, in getting that deal over the line. Yeah, and of course he did stay for the first um, couple of months, didn't he? As, as um, chairman under under James Brent as well. So, oh, so it's got to that point then, whereby obviously James Brent had had a bit of interest in being the preferred bidder, but ultimately he didn't he didn't get the preferred bidder status because I think the Heaney Consortium, which and let's be honest, there were probably some people behind Heaney as well, weren't there? We won't we won't try and speculate too much as to who to avoid the uh, letters arriving at our doorstep, but there may have been some people who, shall we say, were involved the club in the previous regime who were possibly somewhat linked to the Heaney deal. So he, he somehow managed to front up 300k, didn't he, to fund the preferred bidder status. And that was why he he became the preferred bidder. Um, and obviously, obviously at that time, James Brent maybe needed a little bit more convincing. Like you said, he, you know, he had to have that conversation with you at that time. He, he wasn't quite ready to make that commitment. But as a result of that, then we had this three month sort of interregnum between maybe, maybe more like three and a half months between the Heaney Consortium being named as the preferred bidder and Ridsdale Guilfoyle finally realising it wasn't going to happen, didn't we? Over that interregnum, there was all this, you know, smoke and mirrors, the money's coming, the money's not coming, the money might be coming. How, how hard was that just to keep that pressure on? Obviously, bear in mind the season's getting nearer and nearer, we had no kind of squad. How hard was that just to keep that pressure going on in the face of being, you know, palmed off, fobbed off, if you like, by the hierarchy. Well, I think it was wasn't that hard because by that time we'd organised the fan base and we'd united the fan base and every sort of facet of it. Um and you know we used like Pasotti really effectively to communicate with people. We used match days, you know, pre-season, etc. to communicate with people. We were really open every time we spoke to them, we gave an update to everyone. We were really open in our opposition Tahini and and what was essentially the property deal, and we were on a path really to you know uh, destroy that that bid because it needed to be destroyed or it was going to destroy the football club. So that three and a half months, I mean, in some ways you know for the, particularly for like the staff and the players who weren't getting paid must have felt like years, but for us uh, as fans, Sam, people like yourself, myself, others involved in like the contingency group and and, and stuff, it was probably going a lot quicker. And the contingency group was a key point in that because essentially we just, as a group of people, sort of led by myself probably, bring, brought everyone together, brought the trust together, brought the taverners together, brought Pasotti together and like stakeholders like there was the council representative on there. There was Peter Jones who came in at that point, former director, um, uh, bless him. And then, you know, we started to set out our vision. James Brent obviously came onto that. We set out our alternative vision. And I think the fans were then, long before James got preferred bidder, the fans wanted him. You know, he'd been to meetings with us. Uh, we'd taken him to the match, if you remember, the fans reunited match. And we had, they, they were losing momentum and we were gaining it in that three and a half month period. Yeah, absolutely. How how do you feel in stuff like the Guild Tour meeting and, and that kind of thing? You're... Your union experience. You mentioned it yourself. You are you are a union rep, aren't you? In your day job, how do you feel that experience of sort of fighting for people, fighting against the bosses, if you like, helped you in a way that was um, that, that really made a, a tangible difference in that time? I think it was significant in loads of ways. You know, being able to run a meeting, like you know, you know, 
we get there and uh you know at the previous meeting people are you know the club's dying and people are asking if the buses are going to be run next week uh, and, and, and uh, that, that moment yeah. will go down in history, won't yeah. it? That that was just one of the most iconic. I can remember it to this day, and I think you had to you had to tell everyone to calm down, didn't you? Because everyone was moaning and groaning about that comment. <laughs> Sorry, right. carry on. No, no, it's fine. It's a, it's a good indication that your reaction is an indication of the moment, isn't it? And um, so we were able, my, sort of, was able to control a meeting. I think of a, of a big crowd, and I think it was able to uh, chair effectively. The steering committee through that period with some brilliant people like you know John Petrie, Lee Jameson, uh, you know obviously I've mentioned Peter Ryan and many others, uh, and those people who, who, who I can't mention, um, and so that was brilliant. And I think um, the the experience was really knowing that we had to get in their face. You know stuff like you know rallies, uh, online protests, you know Galvan, you know all basic organising tactics all deployed sort of day-to-day working as a rep were deployed with the fans. And one of the things is about Clamovians, obviously being a very, very proud one, is we can be a bit relaxed sometimes about some of the things that are going on. So I think it was like at that point, a necessary invention to mobilise the fan space. And and mobilise we did. I mean, there's some like... And it was like, it was brilliant when you think back at it, because obviously I was like a, you know, bona fide trade union rep and it was like second nature but stood alongside people who i know are like voted tory all their life or had refused to join a union or had never thought of taking part in a protest we're all out there like on the streets or outside the ground or online like fighting for the club yeah and it, it, it was it was incredible <clears throat> excuse me i do i remember the time it was exactly as you described so obviously after you'd done been upstairs and, 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 you know, finished with Kevin Healy downstairs and spoke with James Brent. How long after that did he, did he fully commit to, to being the guy? Was, was it that very day or did it, did it take a little bit more time? Well, that day he, we, like Ian and I uh, took a presentation and sold Plymouth to him and sold Argo to him. Uh, and I think, you know, both of us together, we did it, you know, we can be proud of what we did and we really sold it to him. And we got him that day to say, if there's no one else, I'll do it. So I knew then there was going to be no one else. So I knew then right then that it had to be James. It, so we were then, um, I don't know if you remember, we were organising the Fans Reunited uh, match um, where the Brighton fans yes. were coming down and everything. It, it was it was brilliant, wasn't it? And um, so that was a day. And I said, I rang James and said, why don't you come to the match? Like, you know, we'll keep it low key. We won't tell anyone. Uh, you just come along. Um, and you know, we'll uh, sort of you know, you experience like what, what I know Argyle can be, you know, what I know Plymouth can be, and what we know. And he was like, after some battering, was like, Yeah, okay, okay, where should we take? And I said, I'll get us tickets, we'll go in the Devonport end. And so, before the match, I, I went into the fans fest, which was you know, a, a huge and iconic part of uh, administration and remains an iconic part of the club now to this day. And the different guys are more professional guys now. Uh, went into the marquee, took the microphone and said to everyone, guys, uh, James Brent's coming to the match. Like, you know, he's asked me not to say anything, but I'm going to, like, he's coming to the match and we need his, like, name to be sung. We need this, you know, we need him to be cheered and stuff, you know? Anyway, um, we get there into the Denport end and bearing in mind, I've promised him that I'm telling nobody, like, game kicks off. We're there five minutes. The Denport end starts singing, James Brent, give us a wave. James Brent, James Brent, give us a wave. And he looks at me and he goes, what do I do? I went, you just wave. And he wave. And then if you remember, we won the game 
two nil, and uh, Denport M was singing James Brent was the score. James Brent, James Brent was. So he said, "What do I do?" I went, "Give him two fingers," and he gave him the, the two nil and got a massive cheer. And I think, like undoubtedly, seeing his face, and he had his young son Tom, who's now not so young, strapping young man with him. I knew walking out that that club was going to be bought by James Brent because he'd like all of us. He'd caught the Argyle bug in that moment. Picture the scene. All of your mates around. You've got your McNugget share boxes ready to go. Partner this with your team playing champagne football. Perfect. Order mug delivery now on the McDonald's app. There's nothing quite like a McDelivery. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure, 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Yeah, absolutely. I think by that time, I remember remember when that date was, because it was the day I, funny enough, moved from Plymouth to Southampton to to go to university. So I couldn't make that day. I've been involved in so much of the events leading up to it, but but, but not the day itself. I have heard many of the stories that it was a a fantastic day. and I, I suppose it wouldn't it wouldn't really be um, a, a history of the administration here without touching slightly on on the Argyle visual. Now, obviously, with, with that, um, again, for those who aren't aware, that was an event where for I think four, five nights even um, there was a five at, five day, beg your pardon, presence um, day and night outside Home Park. Um, again, all of the, the groups Chris mentions, the Pastotti, the, the, the Trust, the Taverners, all sort of banding in together. Um, setting up camp outside the Devonport end, um, going into the home game against Crew. I think it was it was the the following the following um, Saturday, and Peter, uh, Peter Isdale in, in true Peter Isdale style turns up with a big bottle of champagne, saying the money's guaranteed from Kevin Healy. The club's been saved, and of course, all the, the what eventually unfolded. The only guarantee was that it had apparently been moved from one account to another account, or he'd secured more investors. But still, in no way was it. A tangible guarantee, and I think that was purely done um, with the promise of, uh, of 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 good publicity, wasn't it? And, and giving the fans a you know something to smile about at the at the end of that visual. So w- w- when he came and, and said that you know the, the deal was done, I'm guessing you knew very well that it wasn't done. Yeah, I mean, there were so many factors uh, amongst the campaign to save the club. I think of marches to the ground, the meetings at the pavilions, the guild hall, the online campaign, the contingency group, uh, the taverners, Pesotti, Trust, you know, the vigil. There were so many things which I think, you know, it all came together, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, to, to, to get us the right result. I wasn't heavily involved in the vigil because... Uh, what I, I mean, this is just this is just me speaking, by the way, not 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 to knock anyone, because I was at that time thinking this fan base needs to be wound up, like it doesn't need to be calm. We don't need to be sort of like almost like praying for our future, and we need to get out there and, and deliver it. Um, so I was sort of one 
I was like sort of whilst the video went on, it was brilliant. I was more one eye on like how do we keep mobilizing the fan base because I think anything for those people at that time was fantasy. I, I with Ian Neil and others had seen the plans on the table, knew it was frankly a load of crap, knew it wasn't going to happen, and knew I didn't want. I wasn't sort of like wanting that money because that money was never going to come, and and it, every day it did that sort of you know uh, Jack and Ori played out. It was risking, you know, people were starving. Fans couldn't, uh, the staff couldn't pay their mortgage, couldn't put food on the table. We, it, you know, you think of footballers as like, you know, oh, you know, Carl Fletcher used to have a Premier League contract, right? They probably had some savings, but we had a, a half a dozen or more young lads who probably were in the same position as the staff. So I wasn't like thinking, oh, you know, let's wait to see if this money comes through for them. I was thinking, how do we get these people out of the way? So, yeah, it was an, it was an interesting point for me. The video, and I, 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 I thought what was strong about it. I think was it just showed how one another example of how many people cared so much about Argyle that they were prepared basically to be there in freezing cold overnight. You know, showing that that you know won't come one way or the other, then they're not going to let the club die. Absolutely. So we're now moving into the end game. Then I think you know shortly after the fans reunited, they what was implicitly known became official, which was that the Ridgedale Healy debacle was was dead in the water and then from then James Brent had about five weeks didn't even get the deal done and probably that five weeks was just as eventful as the four months preceding it really weren't they quite quite a lot happened as as, um, James Brent was trying to get the deal done we had the business of running around after players to get them to sign waivers didn't we we had I think Stapleton got back involved in some way why don't you tell us that 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 five weeks and and your, and your your story of it that just 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 a roller coaster um of emotions really literally from posting to like you know and, and thinking this club's going to be saved to thinking we're gone hour hour by hour almost you know sometimes less than that sometimes minute by minute sometimes you know uh, I, I think one thing we have to say is um James did an incredible job and never ever lost his nerve in that moment I think that you know the the moment we all packed out the council chambers and got the council in principle to agree to buy the ground was a huge moment because uh, that and that essentially made the, it doable for James to to, to, to to connect the dots and, and do the other bit. So that was a big moment when the council, um, you know, agreed to buy the ground. But in that period, it was just up and down. It was constant obstacles, constantly asking for more money uh, from people. And I remember a, a particular really, really, difficult night it was when we went away to Oxford on a Tuesday night and I think we got thumped 5-1 like absolutely thumped and then um, like I come out of the ground and obviously if you're not depressed enough you just lost 5-1 at Oxford you, you, you know you're going that here you know you if you, you, you tumble and the demise of Argo on the pitch alongside off it continues at pace James rang me and I was walking back to the coach and I was on the coach back with the Green Taverners with, with, with Gary Maguire and, and others um and he rang me and said, and I can't remember the Pacific sum, but I, I will say to you, it was hundreds of thousands of pounds. And he said, like the Guilfoyle and co were asking for hundreds of thousands. Of he said, I just haven't got it, Chris. He said, I want to be honest with you. He said, and if I can't do the deal at what they agreed to do the deal, and it was it was to do with fees for P&A's fees for basically running the administration, if you remember. And he said, if they won't come down and do this deal, then, you know, I can't buy the club. I, I can't put my family, and he was being really honest and said, I can't put my family's finances and their future 
at risk. He said, he said, like, you know, I know I've bought into the club. I can see how much you all love it, but I can't, you know, put my family through that moment. I just haven't got that money. And I remember getting back on the coach and everyone going, oh, James, you're right. And I remember going, yeah, yeah, he's fine. Because I thought if I double down with, and this news gets around the internet and the fan base, then like, like you're going to be, everyone's depressed. So I sort of just held it within myself, if you like, for that 24 hour period. Um, but when I got up in the morning, I thought, right, this is it. And I don't know if you remember, Sam, I sort of bit a big long post online and said, we're going to pick, we're not going to the game this weekend. We're going to pick it. Brendan Guilfoyle's office, offices up in Yorkshire. We're going to take coaches to his offices and we're going to, we're going to pick it outside. And also here's an email address. We want thousands and thousands of emails into them, you know, demanding that they, you know, waive their fees and do the deal with James. Uh, so I remember getting loads and loads of abusive content from them saying that you've broken our email server. You know, uh, we got so many emails and people like, you know, um, that's when Guilfoyle came out then and said that myself and others, Ian and others were threatening the future of the club. So that was a moment I remember, like, I won't name them, but I remember some like respected figures in the Argyle fan base on that evening coming on to Prasotti and saying, like, I think you might have gone too far here, Chris. Um, you know, I think you might put the club at risk, you guys, of what you're doing. And there was a moment there where there was, if you like, hold your nerve or do you start saying, oh, sorry, Brendan, like, like you know, can we, and sort of, did we didn't blink and uh, we kept going, we kept our foot on the pedal and we were like, no, we're not having this. Like, we're going to their offices. We are picketing their offices. And that preludes me into the phone call where the next day, which I can tell you about if you want, which is when, Basically, um, we didn't blink. They did, and the deal was done. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that will be an incredibly emotional day. Just a, a couple of other quick points then about just the, the, the events leading up to it. I know we've kind of gone a little bit wonky with the chronological order because I know that the PNA was was pretty much the last fight. But there were there were so many other ones. There was an effort to mobilise again because I think some of the former directors tried to buy the debt from Lombard. That that happened as well, didn't it? That that caused quite a lot of stir. And I think again that. That all pretty much ended after a day or two, didn't it? Because I think the idea was that Lombard were willing to either waive the debt or have it over a certain period of time, whereas the, the certain former directors wanted to actually buy the debt and use that to recoup some of their losses from Argar, didn't they? Yeah, they did. And by that point, Sam, like, you know, the combination of everything, uh, you know, all the, pe- all the alliances, everyone pulling in the same direction, I think we had a really well-oiled, like, machine by that point. So... Like there was so much momentum with us that whether it was the former directors, whether it was Guilfoyle, whether it was Heaney, we were we were rolling over the top of them to get to the finish line to save our club, you know. And all the things that we, you know, whether it was like able to get uh, get a load of people online really quickly to do an action, an email, or a petition, or or a lobby, or whether it was we could get hundreds of people, to, thousands of people, to a meeting to discuss the future. Uh, of the club, whether it was to get people outside the ground doing stuff, whether it was to raise money, we had a really slick and powerful machine. And I think that, you know, from a fan's organisational perspective, we can be really, really proud of that. I mean, I'm, you know, we did a meeting at the Pavilion, Sam, where there was 2,000 people there. I mean, that's, you know, incredible, like, fans meeting on a proper stage, not like, you know, as much as I love uh, a union meeting in a, in, in a beer garden or, or a pub or whatever, like 2,000 people at Plymouth Millions on a match day with, you know, uh, Romain, uh, Lario and, and, and Carl Fletcher coming down to show fans solidarity before they went and played the game. Those are moments that I'm sure will live 
like in all the memory of all the Argyle fans that were there and who played in part of it. So I think, you know, all those twists and turns, there became a point where we had the momentum and it wasn't going to stop until until the club was saved. Yeah, even to the point of, I think, having to track down all these numerous ex-players to agree to the deal, one of whom was even in prison, I think. That must have taken quite a lot of effort as well. So, go on then, let, let's let, let's uh, let's hear it. So, that Friday, and I remember it was a Friday because we were due to play, we did play Cheltenham, obviously, and then Saturday. Talk us through the, and I think it was then absolutely formally confirmed on the Monday, wasn't it? So, that Friday to knowing it was definitely going to happen, the jubilation on the Saturday and then the formalisation on the Monday. Just talk us through, starting from receiving that phone call through to, through to the Monday. What, what, what sort of weekend was that for you all? Yeah, yeah hazy one. Yeah, um, but um, <laughs> when we went, uh, it was, it, I mean, obviously, as, if we touched on a couple of times, uh, at the time I worked as a, a, a union rep on the, on the front line. Now I uh, work at the union's headquarters um, doing, doing a different role. Um, by the time I was like a rep in, in Plymouth in the Southwest and I was representing someone on that morning. So I was in, but I, I obviously the situation as, as, as we've touched on with, with, with Aaron and yourself earlier on was so fluid and so dynamic and ever changing that like I, I, my eye was on that phone 24 seven and bearing in mind the day before was the exchange of you're going to kill the club and us going, we're coming to your headquarters to pick it. We don't care what you say. So it was very sort of high emotion time. I left my, I mean, very unusually for me, I would never done it since or, or before, left my phone on in the meeting, knowing that like I, I needed to take it sort of thing. So I remember representing someone who was in a bit of bother at Royal Mail, one of my mates actually. So it was all right. I got away with it. And we were going through this uh, case where he was, um, you know, getting conducted over something he'd done or whatever. And I was representing him as a rep trying to get him out of trouble. And the phone started ringing and it was Brendan Guilfoyle. And I said, oh, you know, I think we need a recess in the union meeting. Uh, so walked out of the meeting, took the call um, in the sorting office, Royal Mail sorting office in Plymouth. And I said, hello. And he was like, uh, you got what you want. Uh, the, everything's happening. Uh, the James Brent now owns this football club. The golden share will be returned for the club. And I never want to speak to you again. That was my phone call from... from <laughs> Uh, to which I was like, right, okay, wow, amazing. So I rang, I like needed to get back in because this guy's job was on the line, bearing in mind he's an he's a background character and I've actually got a day job. Rang James, he was like, yeah, I've just had the email, literally as you rang me. Rang um, Ian Newell, I think. I posted on Pasotti, like a, literally, if he's probably still there, it's like about 10 words because I needed to, and, and people thinking, oh, I wanted to get on the beer or whatever. I needed to get back in and represent this guy. So I'm like, you know, uh, job done, club is saved sort of thing, everything. And then I went back in and represented this guy. Luckily, I saw him at Argo against Leeds last week. So he's still got his job and he's still working there. <laughs> <laughs> that was going to be my next question. So uh, did, did he keep his job? So I'm glad you've answered that one for me. Yeah. Um, yeah um, so to then, then Cheltenham again, it's, um, I wasn't there myself after being pretty, um, you know, certainly not a main character to the extent of yourself or Graham, but being, shall we say, a bit of a background character for the first seven or eight months, I had to pretty much duck out because I was starting my, my university um, phase of life in Southampton. Um, so that, that sort of final five weeks, so I was pretty much out of all of it. And I was all set to jump on a train to, to Cheltenham from Southampton and, and meet everyone there for a, for a few drinks. But my, my parents announced that they, they surprised me with, with booking a visit to Southampton that weekend. So so I couldn't. But I, I went to watch Southampton play at St Mary's instead. And I remember they, 
they won four nil. But for the, for you, who, you know, who, who obviously was at that day at Cheltenham, just talk us through the, the jubilation of that day. I know James Brent received a, a hero's welcome, didn't he, that day? We got, we, the Great Western helped us as well, didn't they, and put on a train. So it was a strange one. And um, so I was determined, like, you know, to just, I wanted to do the usual thing and go in the way end. And obviously James was then, you know, pseudo uh, owner elect, if you like, at the club. So obviously he was invited in the boardroom and I was saying, having none of it. And I was saying, James, you've got to come in the away end, mate. You, you deserve what's coming your way today. Please come in the away end. You know, and we went in a pub, I think it's called the Spectre in Cheltenham. And um, honestly, when he walked in, the whole pub erupted. And like, there's only one James Brent, but it was just erupted with like emotion as well. And then when we went into the away end, I think we lost the game, either 1-0, 2-0 or something like that. It was standard fare around then, wasn't it? James just got such a hero's welcome from the crowd. It was like, it was unbelievable. And it was so, so well-deserved, like, you know. But it was a weird one because I think, like like I said to you, when you live in a moment, like I'm sure you guys have had in, 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 and having your day-to-day lives and, and, and working lives and everything, it what was weird about Cheltenham was like the spectre was amazing. The pre-match atmosphere was amazing. You know, the whole match, people just obviously buzzing to have their club. And then we go and lose the game and you're like, shit, we may go out of the football league here. And it's a new challenge all of a sudden facing you, you know, and one new, when you're just like, uh, we just need to save the club. That's the only focus, isn't it? And then, and then it switched it switched really quickly to like, how do we stay in the football league? You know. Yeah, and then of course what came in the in in the in the days after. Obviously, um, James Red bestowed a very um, should we say privileged uh, position on, didn't he? Talk talk us through what happened then with your with yourself. So James um, um, James asked me if I was interested in going on the board at Argyle. Um, which my answer was 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 emphatically no because um, you know I just felt like you know I'm all for fan known fan known clubs and really you know as much as I don't like them as a um, as a rival like like the model extra city and other clubs are off and you know particularly the German model really really impressed by and think we'd like to see in England a lot more but it wasn't my thing like and under the terms and the constructions of a standard ball wasn't my thing and then he said he didn't he sort of went away and then he. I met him for lunch or whatever, and he asked me if I wanted to be the president. And, um, you know, it, it, it was, yeah, it's weird, isn't it? I mean, you know, short of, like, putting a ball in front of the, in the back of the net uh, as a number nine in the back at the Devonport end or being a manager, I'm not sure, like, could have ever imagined myself being president of the club I've loved my, my whole life, you know? So it's a, it's a huge, huge honour. At the same time, it's a weird one for me because... You know, I look back and fifty percent of me is like, do you know what? You got you were the president of the club you loved your life, like you know, what what a thing. The other thing was like, part of me is like, I'm not sure I was ever suited to something like that. I, I think I was always suited to like the row, if you like, or or, or the, the conflict resolution and the, the kind yeah, of edge, gonna, you know. I was going to say like, how does it differ from? You know, I don't want to generalize unions, but going from like the little man shooting up to being president must have been like you said just really weird yeah it it, it it was strange and like I said there's moments where I think mm, like well put it this way if I think if if it was to all happen again and you have this thing of hindsight I'm not sure sure I would have accepted the the presidency you know for, for loads of reasons but I, I think I probably wouldn't um no and and the main one really was like once I'd say once I stepped down 
and was back in the match with my mates and stuff like that. You're like, oh, why have I been missing this? Like, you know, um, it, it's not, um, it's not really me as an individual. But at the same time, like the previous president was like, you know, the, the Japanese international guy, wasn't he? And like, there was a little bit of me, which is like, well, maybe this is part of, you know, rebirthing the club is like, there's a Jana who's a fan. Maybe it was a good good sort of map balance out for that, you know? Yeah, I mean you'd struggle to do a lot worse, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was an interesting it was an interesting time. And then obviously it was testing because there was a point where um James brought uh Tony Raffle back onto the board. Um and I got loads of time for Tony, he's a really nice man, and, and Jackie and, and his family are lovely, lovely people. Um, but I remember publicly disagreeing with that. And it caused a huge hassle for James within his own board at the time and a bit of a split with people saying, like, get rid of him as president, like he's been disloyal and all that sort of stuff, you know, and James didn't. Um, but I think probably it would have been much healthier for me to be not president and to be outrightly mm-hmm. criticising. And that was nothing to do with Tony. I mean, he's, I, I mean, what I've, you know, latterly come to realise is, like, Tony's a fine, fine individual, as are his family, and perhaps he was hoodwinked by some of the previous administration uh, and the board, you know, and he was, he was one of the good guys, but I just felt at the time, like, you know, that the, the fans were so scarred from that previous regime that even allowing for that, it wasn't the right thing to do. So I spoke out and it, and it caused James loads and loads of asshole and probably caused me like conflict. Whereas if I was speaking freely, it would have just been, well, this is my view. You know, I'm like, like take yeah, it or yeah. leave it, you know? Mm. Yeah, you've you, you sort of answered my... I know how Aaron feels now, but you sort of answered what was going to be my next question because I know that obviously at that time there was a lot of, um, you know, di- disagreement back and forth amongst fans about some issues. Some of it was, as you say, very small P politics. Some of it was quite, you know, small time, wasn't it? But obviously there, there was some of it that was, was very substantial as well. And there's some of it that was about issues that were of great impact, like like the higher home park redevelopment that, that ultimately never happened. Um, and, and like, obviously, as, as you mentioned, like I was going to say, bringing, bringing Tony back on board and maybe um, to an extent, um, you, you and I disagreed on those issues, Chris, obviously more than we did on the, the, the administration, not that we disagreed on Raffle, I pretty much entirely agree with you on that, but on the, on, on, on the higher home park, I, I felt that there was, a, you know, there was, a, there was a bit of an issue around separating the ownership of, of the club from the car park land. I felt I was maybe hemming a bit and, and sort of, so we say have a net detrimental impact on our ability to to maximise revenue in years to come, which obviously has now been rectified under Simon Howard. The club now has that land back. But but thinking back at that, was there a bit of it that that, that you thought to yourself, you know, I don't want to use the phrase poacher turn gamekeeper because I, you know I don't doubt that you you, you were saying what you, you want to see believe. But was there a bit of you that was so, or, or, or almost sort of doubting, like you say, from being someone who was on, on the outside questioning, querying, having a bit of a ruck? Was there a bit of you that sort of resented or, or struggled with having to defend the club position on stuff like that at times? Uh, no, because I wasn't defending the club position by that point. And I think, like, you know, what, what had become clear at that point is, it, it in effect, in a degree of honesty, like, you know, James's loyalty to me for what happened in the administration period and, and the friendship and the, and the alliance that we built up uh, will we, we'll, we'll hold strong, hopefully, forever. Like, he's, he's, a, he's a great friend of mine and... What I'd sort of done by that point is started to sort of take a step backwards and backwards and backwards. And it had become really um, an unsaid thing between James and I, which was like, you know, when someone comes along, like Simon came along, which is like absolutely brilliant, like 
we'll both we'll both head off into the sunset. So my role sort of become well, you don't want to use the word tokenistic, but I suppose it's probably a decent description of it. You know, more like yeah, he's a president, but like you know, just that's it really. It fades into the background, you know. And I mean, you know, like we'd have a if, if something was wrong, we'd always be on the phone, or I felt it was wrong, or I felt the majority of the fan base felt it was wrong. Would would challenge James, uh, you know, or whoever regularly, sort of in private or in the right way, or occasionally um, publicly. But I think that the difficulty, you know, what I saw watching it all play out was the club had no money, uh, literally no money. Um, and you know, we were all going, you know, what we should do is this. What I mean, right now, for example, yeah. Let me give you a good example. Right now, I think the club's under ambitious on capacity of the stadium. That's what I think as a Plymouth Argyle supporter, yeah? Now, I know there's vast majority of fans who are like, oh, we need to stay in the Championship for four or five seasons, keep selling out the ground and that. But, like, I grew up as a football fan, and in my head, you're not a proper club unless you've got a 20, 25,000-seater stadium. And I know we could be filling that this season, yeah? So I'm saying that now to Simon. So that's a challenge to him. And he's saying, well, you know, economically, that don't, I'm not saying I'm saying that because I haven't, but I'm, I'm giving a view. And he would say to me, as he would say in the fans' forums, that's ec- not economically viable. That's not a priority at, at this juncture, you know? So I think, like, the right of fans to criticise is enshrined in football. Like, like, last, like last week, for example, yeah? Like, the team win at Middlesbrough, which was brilliant. Like, every single person with green blood in them is buzzing with that result. But that doesn't mean we weren't entitled the week before to say that isn't good enough. Because that, that's what people pay their money for. They're entitled to, as long as they do it in the right way and they're respectful and they're decent, they're entitled to challenge the board. They're entitled to challenge the management. Because th- these people, whether they're owners, whether they're um, as good as they are, whether they're managers as good as they are, players, they're, they're passing through. Like We're the custodians of the club, if you like. They're the custodians, sorry. But the heartbeat of the club is, is its fans. There's, there's also an element to that, right? Like, even if it is going well, even if it is, you know, running at 92% or whatever, you still have to ask those questions because it's when you stop asking those questions that I don't want to say people get too much. Um, or they don't get too much leeway, but do you know what I mean? That they start believing in their own ideas and stuff. And, and you know, that can that can also be detrimental, right? Like too, too many yeah. seasons, Exactly. And I'm sure that's like, say, someone like Simon or someone like James... They would come to expect it, you know. They haven't become really successful business people by everyone agreeing with everything they've ever said. They've been challenged. They, they, they you know, they've had their ideas, their costings, everything, you know, their values. They've had them scrutinised. They've had due diligence done. So, you know, they would expect like people uh, to, to do that in, in, in a different arena, in the football arena. Like, you know, um, uh, I'm sure it's absolutely fine at Argyle right now, but. For me, as a championship club, we haven't got a decent enough backroom staff. We, we don't like seem to have the infrastructure, like sort of coaching, etc., of a championship club. Now that might be absolute crap because we just went away and we outfoxed uh, Middlesbrough, who probably got one of the most vast coaching teams in, in, in the championship. You know, so it might be absolute rubbish what I'm saying, but like we're entitled to say it and, and have a chat about it. That's what makes football so brilliant, isn't it? Mm. Absolutely. So, so if you don't mind me asking then, without wanting to obviously give, give away too much of, of what, what would have been a private conversation, I'm guessing you were sort of getting the same answers from James when, when the plans for the home park capacity were revealed, because that sort of penned us in at about what would have been about 17 and a half thousand then. So were, were you sort of having similar conversations behind the scenes to the ones you're having now? 
Yeah, a hundred percent. And he, and you know, and he was working absolutely everything possible to drain every sort of seat we could out of that amount of pound, if that makes sense. You know, so that's not. A, but we have ended up, if you like, we've ended up around that anyway, and we well, we've ended up less than that. Well, that, that, that is true. Yeah, we are actually um, slightly less, if anything. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, you know. It, like if we thought um, I don't know seventeen and a half thousand was unambitious, we're now selling out and capping at sixteen and a half, aren't we? Um, so uh, maybe, maybe Sam, maybe you're wrong, mate. Maybe if you listen to James, you could have had a thousand extra seats there. <laughs> well, well, who, who know? Well, seven hundred, I, I, I would say, in a first because there still would have been segregation. But um, that's seven hundred people who might have seen us speak Norwich six two that didn't. So who knows? Maybe you're right. Um, you cost all 700 people all those moments of glory. I'm pinning that just on you, Sam. Um, um, I, I, I should wear my sackcloth and ashes to the next game and penance. Um, but um, no, um, in, in all seriousness, I want to ask one more question about the post-administration era before we end on a bit of a, a happy note. Because I know Aaron's got a few questions about what, what we can do to help Torquay and, 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 you know, what you absolutely did very well, and I think even your Sturdish questions would agree you did very well, what was bring everyone together in that administration era of... Um, your Pasotti, Taverners, Trust, individuals, etc. Um, James Brent tried to do something very similar in the um, what was initially the Gas Board, which then, because everybody took Nicky out of the name, became the PASD, um, where he would get representatives from all of the above organisations and a few others, I think, to sit and have a board meeting where he would um, give feedback to, to the club, sorry, give feedback to the fans, receive feedback from the fans, and there would be that fan consultation um you know ongoing why do you think the PASV didn't really work in your view janet because, because i don't think we can argue it didn't work yeah go on janet yeah yeah the, the, the sort of i think and this is what i was saying uh, earlier on about like um you know uh sort of injecting that sort of militancy into the fan base when the club was saved i think you know i think i think everyone loads of people were exhausted I think that's the first thing, you know, from that period, people were just exhausted and like, well, that's my lot to give. Other people were just like buzzing, get me back to the ground, see you later, fans trust, see you later, you know, uh, sort of politics of the club. And then I think like, if I'm being honest, like, you know, so that sort of like heightened situation and heightened pressure that had attracted people like me, uh, Peter Ryan, like Ian Newell, and people who could see their way through a row was no longer there and it was peacetime. So if you see like, you know, I mean, I don't, I mean, obviously, you know, I think you know me, I'm not a fan of like, like war and uh, particularly sort of not at times like now, but you know, that sort of peacetime leadership, wartime leadership, that sort of balance, if you like, we moved to sort of a more peacetime settlement and that required different types of people, which it, it, it came to the fore. But then like when you go in, right, Let's have a meeting because this club may die tomorrow. You get 2,000 um, passionate Argyle fans turn up. When you say let's have a meeting because we need to know whether the number 67 from Plimstock to um, Home Park is going to run on a match day or not, you, you're going to get, you know, you're going to get your, you're going to get your, I don't know how you even term this, you're going to get your more interested supporters who are, are going to go there. Um, what would they say on Twitter now? You're going to say you get... People, people like me, basically. Yeah, people like me would go, but nobody else. That, that's what would happen. <laughs> yeah, they would call them, what do they call them, another dry robe supporter? 
The dry road, yeah, that's right. That seems to be a bit of a online meme at the moment, doesn't it? But yeah, I, I can I completely take on take on board the point of of what you're saying, Chris. And it's been an absolute pleasure to to relive some of that era. The only slightly um, sad thing for me is actually looking back at now and then listening to some of the names you've mentioned. How many are actually sadly no longer with us? And I guess that sort of says how how much time has passed since then, doesn't it? Um, that that's probably it, probably it for me, um, Chris. It's been again been a pleasure talking to you and reliving old times. And you, Sam. Really enjoyed it, buddy. We can't do a My Argyle Life with, with you without obviously mentioning that. Um, that rousing speech at, at Wembley, most probably the highlight of everyone's day, to be honest, because that whistle went and it just turned to mulch and was one of the worst days of my life, um, genuinely. Um, so I, I, there's no real question here. Just like how, what sense of like, pride did you have because obviously that's that's a massive thing right being given that opportunity to yeah to, you know what what was there like thirty eight thousand jabbers there yeah it was incredible wasn't it i mean it's a day i can look back with more fondness now than than on the day yeah um so it was also a day right where crossroads came for do i want to be president or do i not want to be president on that day because right. like all of my mates were in the green man, absolutely off their trolley, yeah. going wild, like setting off smoke bombs, singing, sending me clips after clips after clips, and like literally having the time of their life. And so they had that pit of the day, which is no matter how I went on the pitch, they always had that together. Yeah. I had to be I had to be at the ground at eleven AM when Wembley was totally sem- empty for a sound test. Right. And um I'd got there. And I'd done it, and I was um, again something you should look back extremely fondness. Um, obviously, as president, I was in the royal box, um, so so I look back now, and I'm like, I got to take my son in in the royal box at Wembley. Who's now, you know, he's now an Argyle fan. He goes every single away game. Um, mm. Absolutely loves it. He's he was attacker, and now he's 21 this year. You know, um, goes Argyle home and away like relentlessly. So I got to take him in the royal box at Wembley, and I got to speak in front of 60,000 people before the match like like wow the other side of that coin is like i wanted i would have wanted to be sat in with the fans having a sing song which we didn't sing much because it was rubbish wasn't it but i would have wanted to be in that pub with my mates having a laugh and having a sam buying me a shot um to roll back the years but i didn't i didn't do that um and also the game obviously as everyone knows was was abysmal wasn't it we just didn't turn up and then after the game I was living in um milton Keynes, so even after the game, it was quite sad because all the Argyle fans went to one Wembley station and I walked off with the Wimbledon fans, obviously having the time of their lives uh, and yeah. celebrating. Um, so, yeah, it was it was, it was was a really mixed day. But actually, you know, as far as, you know, getting to say a few words in front of the fans at Wembley, though, I mean, yeah, what, what, what a buzz, like, or what an absolute, what a privilege as well. Yeah, and I, I know it doesn't compare, but I mean... The odd, the odd occasion that I've done like hospitality at Argo just it just doesn't feel right. It just doesn't like you're in like a padded seat and yeah, it's a nice bit of chicken or whatever, but you're like, yeah. you know, it's not really the same as it. it's not the same routine. It's not seeing the same people in the same faces. Uh, like you said, having a few pints. I mentioned it in the intro. Talkie United have, have find themselves in a, in a similar fight. Um, I suppose you've already touched on fans United. Um, I suppose really, what, how much did that support from fans? Of, of other clubs, namely Brighton. I think Torquay were quite a big one. I can't really remember like individual clubs because there were just so many. I remember the shirts that came flooding into the fan fest that 
yeah. uh, pretty much every every club that robbed us of some brilliant player for pennies like Charlton mm. and Bristol City as well. How much did that help and how much did that aid Argyle's course? Oh, massively, because I think, like, if you said, you know, um, did it change direction or speed of anything, then probably not. But what it did is, is I mean, Sam will attest to this because he was obviously heavily involved as well, is it was just a constant roller coaster of emotions. And what it did is it just gave people a good lift at when they needed it, you know, to go there and to say, actually, it's not just us. Other people care about us and other people care about this football club and football clubs in general. So I think it was like an emotional thing uh, more than anything, like a mental thing that like gave you that lift just mm. at the time you need it. And then it was carried on, obviously, online as well as fans uh, attending the match. And the Torquay situation you, you, you've touched on, Aaron, it is horrendous and, and has lots of similarities, doesn't it? And I sh- I'm sure that Argyle fans, you know, whether it's another fans reunited, whether it's like online forums like this, whether it's raising money. I mean, I saw so many uh, Argyle scarves and shirts in the crowd at playing more in the photos from the weekend, which is fantastic. And I and I think there's a game later in the month when we've got an international break. And I would yeah. like, really encourage Argyle to like pack that out. And I'm sure we will. But I think like there's lots to be learned from what we went through and lots of expertise that we can lend Torquay and, and we should. Yeah, I mean, that was that was literally going to be my next question is, is you know, what advice do you have for I think it's a you know Talking United Supporters Trust, their fans, you know, you've touched on it, their their own mammoth fight. In some ways, you could argue it's a bigger fight, right? Then because you know it's a, it's a smaller club, and we're we're not exactly massive as much as we like to chat about it. Uh, we we are the forgotten club when people list off the names of clubs yeah. that nearly went out of business. Nobody ever says, "Oh, and our girl." Um, you know, what, what can we do? Obviously, you've mentioned that you know going up there and support, but like, what can we do and offer them as as a collective? To, to aid them in this fight? I think as a sort of message, it would be to the fans to like, don't undervalue your influence. Mm. Uh, because I think there was, there was some of that going on at Argyle, which we, we got in and, and we changed. Cause like, you know, it's like a, like a boss, a CEO or whatever, and you're a worker, you, you're not sure whether you can influence that person or, you know, that person's this big sort of all powerful individual. And it's a bit like that in football and football has this thing of like, yeah, but it don't work like that in football. Oh yeah, but it's just football. So that, that, w- that wouldn't happen here. When in mm-hmm. fact, that's just a load of smoke and mirrors, you know? And I would say to the Torquay fans, if you organize, if you get, you know, all the components we had, like get the money together, get the militancy together, get the community together, get the, the, the politicians in the local area together. And like, not shirk anything and go at you know the, the, this situation, then you'll save your football club. And from our perspective, like I think it, it, it's money, it's online support, so people can see, they can feel it. It's attending the games, and it's like sending sending speakers. You know, people like Sam should be going to meetings there and and sharing the the experience of those moments for our for that Argyle had. And you're right there, Aaron. We are we were the and we are the forgotten list club on that list of teams that have been in administration and I think obviously you know Bury went didn't they and and, and it was yeah. so sadly they went but like other than Bury I reckon we were the closest of any club to actually going like mm-hmm. we were like you know I had those calls with Guilfoyle uh where like you know where his toys were at the plan and he was prepared I believe until we pushed him so far where he realized the consequences he was prepared to let his ego kill a lot of club and the fans didn't have it and I, and I know the Torquay fans aren't going to have it either 
Yeah, this might be like an incredibly open uh, question to finish on that we could probably do a whole pod on. So you don't you don't have to make it like a big thing. But do you think that obviously football does have an ownership problem, right? But obviously, you know, being both sides of that that table, if if you like, you know, being on the board or club president and being uh, chair of the fans trust and you know facing both of those roles, like internally and externally, do, do you? What what do you think that could be done within like boardrooms to to stop this ownership issue? Obviously, I, I mean like the simple answer is don't sell clubs to wrong ones, right? But like, do, do you advocate like a golden share or or you know where, yeah. where, where there's a fan on the board? Like, I don't know what what are the options? So I would, yeah, I think that, that that that's a certainly an option. I think I would just I think due diligence like it's football's like no other. It, like you know, it's obviously a business, isn't it? But it's like no other business in the world. Like where, like, like a cowboy can walk in and all of a sudden own your football club. That wouldn't happen in any other industry or sector uh, of the economy. And I think we, um, you know, football clubs need to be held to exactly the same due diligence and standards of, of of a normal business. I think like more more fan ownership and having that that sort of golden share, like the German model, is 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 a big big thing. And I think it being like literally, if you saw, if you like, um, you see the attacks on trade unions in this country uh, from from this government, not to get political, um, but it's the same for fans organisations. I think like fans trust should be recognised by clubs through like you know through through legislation where you know fans have a right to have a voice on these things. And then I think you need to strip down key issues um, and you know be camp if because I think if you campaign on single issues and then you can win like on those issues and that leads to collective wins. So, you know, replica shirts, even Argyle, like, you know, it ain't right. You're paying like the money you're paying for, for a kid's kit, you know, or let alone go into bloody the, the Premier League and stuff like that. You know, the price of a match day ticket at some of these clubs, you know, the, the, the standard and the pricing of food, etc. And I think like, you know, really there should be the development of a, of a proper fans charter, which enables, um, you know, real change in the game. And that includes the boardroom, but it also includes like off the pitch because you get loads of fans. Like my mates always used to rib me because, like, obviously, you know, got a political persuasion, and a political interest, and they go like, "Oh, you know." I, leave... I, don't think, I don't think you've ever mentioned it, Chris. No, no, they would say like, you know, leave, leave, leave their politics out of football. But like, politics seeps into every single fibre of life. We're literally sat in plastic seats because like a government decided to ban say standing for to uh you know to target a group of working class people like you know there's there's no escape from politics in any aspect of life so we have to as a, as a group of supporters you know i'm not talking argo i'm talking every club we have to we have to meet that head on with our own for me our own charter for football um which i think is long overdue yeah i think um like i said we could do a whole podcast on it yeah. and it'd be its, yeah. its own thing and maybe Maybe in the off season we might. I mean, you know, we've got a list of ideas. We can add it yeah. to the bottom. Uh, if people want to hear it, then maybe we can do that. It's it's interesting how we in this country ridicule, maybe not ridicule is a word, but like we look at the Germans and say like, do you not want more money in your game? But then like, but the only time we've really come together as a, as a complete unit is obviously the Super League. And even then it was only really fans of, Four or five clubs and whatever, but that the the potential is there for movement. Just 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 quickly, can I remember on most of these? Um, we've we've always ended it with a little bit on Argyle and how we're doing it at the moment. So, what do you think of us this season? What do you think of Ian Foster so far? And what do you think the club needs to do to get to the next level? 
So I think, um, you know, I think the club's doing incredibly well. I mean, you cannot hide away from the fact that we have the lowest budget in the division. So if you're, if you're applying like uh, like data, like Simon uh, Hallett likes to, the data says we should be bottom of the league. What I, what I was excited, what I've really, really proud of and sort of talk about the first chunk of the season was led by Schumacher, was we've came up and had a go. You see so many teams who are promoted through the divisions and get to the Championship or get to the Premier League and they completely, you know, they park the bus, change the style and just get beaten week after week and it just you just fade away in, into like nothingness. We've come up and we've had a proper go. Um, I think, you know, what happened with Schumacher was really unfortunate and, it you know, I, I'm not sure it's going to work out for him, but that was his choice. And the club did incredibly well to recover from that situation right on the doorstep of a January transfer window thrown into utter turmoil. Uh, it did really, really well. I mean, I think the honesty is with a manager, it's really hard to, to judge this early in. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, like negatively, if you like, there seems to be, we seem to have lost a bit of our gusto and our pizzazz and style at home. I think that that, that is a sure thing. But we picked up two more away wins than the zero we had all season before um, Ian, Ian came in. And he certainly like solidified us. And I think, you know, if you if you allow for that transitional period between the two managers, two completely different styles, like for example, a tidbit I picked up was um, that after the games now, Ian keeps the players in for an hour, like England style, and and they go through an hour, they run through immediately the whole game, like like Southgate does at England. So you know Schumacher wasn't doing that. So you're talking like mass change to the amount of data, the amount of sort of information that these players are getting, whilst there's one game every three days. So, like, you know, there's a, it's, it's a massive rush. So, I think you'd have to say, like, you know, get 10 more points. Uh, plus, we're likely to be in this division next year. And that was the target at the start of the season. So, well done. I think it'll be a really, really interesting summer. I'm looking forward to seeing, like, the Ian Foster side of August uh, 2024. And I think that's when, as long as we stay up and we give him the summer to imprint his style, bring in his players... You know, maybe we'll, uh, you know, we'll sell Morgan potentially and reinvest that money. Like, you know, you've seen what Swap, um, Coventry have done, for example. They've rebuilt their team, haven't they? And they're, they're coming again. I think exciting times ahead for our goal. I mean, my thing would be, like, if you look at Luton or you look at other teams who've done it well, is, is to get in that top six. And if you can get in that top six, then anything can happen. I think Simon's said it himself, hasn't he, which is really honest, is, like, the budget isn't there. You look at, like, Leeds, 60-odd million quid playing budget we've got six million we're, we're not going to reach that we're going to need to can we're going to need to sell reinvest sell reinvest until we can consistently be in and around the top six to ten and we're going to need to get there one year and we're going to need a bit of luck and hopefully um you know we can all dream of seeing our goal in the premier league what what, what i think that would be wouldn't it? we have a message to simon Allah. you're going to need to put some more seats in then simon <laughs> I think if we get to the Premier League, then, then we'll have to do it somewhere. Other. Anyway, that really is it for me now. Um, Aaron, anything else you want to say? No, I, sp- I suppose the last thing is how proud are you of your, yours, the GTs, the fans trust, the what's the other one that I'm missing? Basotti's efforts uh, or collective fan base efforts, um, seeing where the club is now. Obviously, you're talking about we're t- talking about Premier League aspirations, right? Like, as you said, at that point, we thought it was done and dusted. Just, just how, um, how proud are you of, of that transition from yeah, I mean, best daughter Premier League? When we were knocking about doing it, it was probably Blue Square Premier League was was uh, 
more likely than the actual Premier League, wasn't it? And um, so, like, yeah, really proud. And you used the word uh, collective, and, and it was collectivism that delivered mm-hmm. that. And, you know, the sort of inner strength that the staff had to, you know, keep going and keep the work. The players had to keep going to work without being paid and all those sorts of uh, things and, and, and the fundraising and the internet activity and the, the in-person activity. Really, really proud. I, I'd probably finish, though, by saying I think in the last sort of decade or so, we've seen the three most individ- influential figures at Argyle and Argyle's history. And I think the first one's James Brent, because, you know, let me be very clear for anyone who may be in any doubt, no James Brent, no Argyle, like, mm-hmm. like full stop. And I think James was really honest about what he had the capacity and resources to achieve. And then I think the second and third most important people were Simon and Jane Hallett, who have taken it on to that next level and done an incredible job as well. And it may be at some point that just as there was a baton passing from James to Simon and Jane, there may be a pattern to be passed on. Who knows? I'm sure, you know, ever growing Argyle is an attractive uh, prospect for someone, but now it's really, it's re- we're really, really proud of everything. I'm proud of everyone as well who was involved back on then, Sam and everyone included. Um, and I think, you know, we can look back on that era with fondness. But equally, like, you know, I'm I'm really happy to be back in the throes of Argyle was about the, the 3 p.m. till 5 p.m. on a Saturday and 7.45 to 9.45 on a Tuesday. Exactly that. I think we're hugely grateful to... Um... To yourselves, I'll include you there, Sam, as well. Go on, I'll be nice. Um, you know, everybody you've named throughout, you know, as Sam was saying, the, the, the people that we've lost along the way as well. Everybody that's played a, a huge part in the, in the fact that we do have that, you know, that Saturday, 3 p.m. I've got, I've got uh, one question for you. I've got a question for you, Aaron, if that's all right. Oh, go on then. As the uh, the Argyle Life budget, podcast budget, does it not stretch to buying Sam a laptop stand? <laughs> Um, no, well, I mean, I've offered to buy my mic, but he's, he's not a fan of that. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, the, the budget isn't, despite being yeah, there, he is. Uh, <laughs> despite being uh, part of the Talksport fan network, there's not a huge amount in the kitty. I won't lie. Uh, hopefully, soon, hopefully, soon, if people keep listening, liking. Uh, subscribing, sharing, commenting. Maybe we might stretch to buy Sam a, a, a personalised laptop stand. Um, would, I mean, uh, I mean, maybe it'll stretch. Maybe it'll stretch to pay me enough money that I can move into my own flat and I don't have to worry about house mates. That would, that would be that would be the real the, the real aim. But uh, I think we're a little bit off that yet. <laughs> if we can afford your rent, we definitely can't afford a chair. So, um, yeah, with, with, with that, I think we'll call that a night. I really appreciate you jumping on, Chris. Uh, like I said, I've basically been sat here listening along. Uh, really insightful um, and, and look forward to to what the future holds. Cheers. Yeah, thank, thank you very much, Chris. Thank you. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure, 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. 
Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.